Welcome to Pillow Voices, a production of Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival, with content from the Pillow Archives. I'm Norton Owen, the Pillow's Director of Preservation, and it's my pleasure to host this episode, focusing on Eve Laris Cohen's exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art, entitled Studio Theater. As the follow-up to a previous conversation with exhibition curator Martha Joseph and former Pillow director Liz Thompson, here I'm in conversation with the artist himself. Well, here we are at the Museum of Modern Art, and I'm speaking with Eve Laris Cohen. And it is the month after the end of studio theater. So I want to find out what has happened since the exhibit and the performances have ended. So all of the installation materials are back in storage Ironically, maybe, or coincidentally, in the same location where I worked with them for all those months to reconstitute them. And they'll remain there for who knows how long. So it's almost full circle in some kind of way. Yes, I'm trying to think of... It's interesting the way you phrase that, what else has happened, because... This is now a fallow period, and as I tell my students, it's one of the most critical moments in an artist's working life, even more critical than their periods of activity and art making. And it's a frightening time (laughs) in that way, with absence, the lack of... uh, project. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that that in a way this project started out with loss. It's another full circle thing in a way. On my computer, the desktop image is the 33-foot intact wall at the pillow when it was snowy. It was just before the demolition crew came and tipped it down on its face. And when I opened my computer a few days after the exhibition closed, which was on January 1st, I felt just ultimate, uh, what did I feel? Um, Overwhelming grief. And I thought, oh, this is maybe what everyone who had a connection to the Doris Duke Theater, everyone who is affiliated with the pillow who's been involved in this or not, but this is what they must feel seeing the exhibition, maybe, or something like this, which is not necessarily what I feel inside the installation or inside the performances, but now, I think, mediated by the the project, the show, I feel a similar type of grief and loss. I understand. Well, it's it's an interesting place to start a conversation, but I feel like that's the elephant in the room at the moment, uh, is that the elephant is no longer in the room. Uh, the, the, the wall is no longer in the museum. 
And uh, so I wanted to address that right off the bat. But but actually, I I would love to go back in time and um, and talk about the beginning of this project because uh, that would have been another. You talk about this as a fallow period, so I guess in a sense that must have come out of a fallow period in a way. Uh, I I wonder if you could talk about what happened when you first heard about the fire and what thought process went on in your head at that point? Well, it wasn't just a personal fallow period, but a collective one for the globe in some respects with the pandemic, of course, uh, different regions experienced it differently at different times. But yeah, let me just remind everybody that this was November of 2020. Yes. Uh, when the Doris Duke Theater burned. So, and as an artist, it was a a, a year of relative inactivity. I mean, for for many of the arts, but specifically for performing arts, it was a fallow period that the field had never seen. And it was one that we didn't know if we'd recover from. And I imagine that the pillow institutionally was dealing with those kinds of questions, not how do we demo the aftermath of a fire, demolition, that is. Mm -hmm. So to lose a key structure, and not just a functional one, but a symbolic one, I, that was not lost on me. It seemed very significant. Someone shared an article on social media. I don't remember who the first person was that I saw, but many of my friends were posting about it. Many friends who had performed there, had residencies there. But you yourself never had. You no. had never you had never even been to the pillow before that time, right? No, never. So it it's fascinating to me that it would have struck such a chord for you. I knew that the pillow was significant to dance and the development of American modern dance. And that fact was enough to compel me to visit and and observe the aftermath. And in the beginning, that's really all it was, right? You didn't hear about it and say, I'm going to do an exhibit on this. What what so how uh, can you talk us through maybe the stages of what you did in the beginning and and how it began to take shape? I had a feeling that there was something there that would pull me back into thinking artistically again. I hadn't in not just since the beginning of the pandemic, but frankly, even a year before that, when I had had a series of very invasive abdominal surgeries, I did one performance shortly thereafter, which was very kind of urgent and time-sensitive <laughs> because it involved a 
part of my body that would subsequently be transformed such that I wouldn't be able to do the performance ever again. Or actually, who knows, maybe, maybe later in my life I'll have an ostomy, but I no longer do. But I, after, after that urgent performance, I had nothing scheduled except for teaching, and that was a, already a, a frightening fallow period, and I had this fear that curators and institutions and that I had previously had relationships with were kind of afraid to approach me, especially those, those that are situated squarely in dance as a system, uh, as opposed to uh, an art museum. But I, because of, you know, a, a kind of longstanding and maybe inherent ableism in the field, I think. So I was afraid that my tether to, to dance had, yeah, had been irrevocably changed or destroyed. And this was, this fire somehow was the way that I could re-enter dance. Well, that's really amazing to hear that it was actually, that it was an instrument of change for you and, and an instrument of, of creativity that it, that, that that came out of this fire. Because I think in a more generalized way, that's one of the things that has excited me so about this project is that it takes a tragedy and turns it into something that nobody could have ever imagined. Uh, so I, I just, it's miraculous what you were able to do with an event that ended so much and yet you took the end of something and made it the beginning of something else. And I appreciate that you see it as a beginning because I think there's a tendency to assume that this exhibition was a memorial to the theater, a memorialization of what that theater represented, perhaps. But... I think and hope it was more forward-looking in the way that Jacques Derrida thinks of archives as not being of the past, but in fact, they're anticipatory, they're lying in wait, and they're future-oriented. That's, um, that's a wonderful idea to bring out. Can you say more about that? I mean, I, of course, can't say more without acknowledging your life's work now, or at least since 1990 officially, as the archivist in your role as director of preservation at, at Jacob's Pillow. So I guess I'm, I'm saying it to maybe introduce a counterpoint to something you have said in the past, which is that you are interested in, did you say, the past and the present? And, and, and that that is the domain of your work. 
But maybe my argument is that it's also, and maybe even more so than these other things, of the future. Well, it's that where else can the future come from? <laughs> True. Um, except from from the past and the present. Um, but I wonder if, you know, one of the things that has happened even since we had the previous conversation is that there was a, a, a quite a lengthy and thought-provoking article in the New York Times by Gia Corliss. And one of the things that, that of course, this is what a writer does is to... to crystallize things and to boil things down. And one of the phrases that she used to describe the project was, she said that it was about the fragility of space, art, and the body. I wonder what you think about that uh, distillation and if, if you would have anything to add or I'm so curious about what Martha thinks actually about that because one of the Martha and I had you're many speak, you're speaking about Martha Joseph Martha the Joseph curator. Yes. yes we had many uh, volleys and long discussions about the specifics of the language that would describe the show the performances, the installation, and also the structure itself before it had burned down. I say structure now because throughout it's been, I've been careful to to not call the Duke, even the Duke, a, a theater, a studio theater, or a studio. And because that would, uh, I would be a, taking a position mm. in, even in speaking about it casually behind the scenes. Anyhow, but back to this idea of fragility. Mm -hmm. One of the early things, I think I had written in the first proposal, or did I say that to you? A phrase that, that Martha was compelled by, and I think Pam was as well. Pam Tadji, the director of The Pillow. Yes, was the idea of somehow reworking or reassembling the remains of, of the structure into a fragile theater. Mm. And I abandoned that term because... I didn't want, I was uh, resistant to the idea that I was recomposing a, a complete theater in and of itself. It, mm -hmm. it, 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 I was harvesting parts and, and reassembling parts, and MoMA's parts were suppo supporting the pillow's parts, mm -hmm. and... Um, and yes, they, they were standing in for a space, for a, a, a theater, perhaps. But uh, I don't know. The, but the idea of fragility, and Martha and I spoke a lot about this too, you know, it, the MoMA's studio, for example, is uh, 
is a fragile thing. And so this is the space in which the wall was shown and and where the performances took place. Yes, and all, all and back to this idea of memorials mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. I think that theaters theaters that are still with us mm-hmm. are theaters are already memorials, <laughs> and even if they no longer exist, they're memorials themselves. Do you mean that they're memorials to the performances that have taken place in them or to the to, to what has what has happened in those spaces in the past or even themselves mm-hmm. I want to think more about that argument mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. before I go further mm-hmm. but but yeah I I feel committed to the idea that all performance spaces are contingent dependent fragile. Mm. They need support, buttressing, not just once, but continually. Well, isn't it interesting to think that even even if you had uh, moved away from using fragility as a way to describe it in some way, that was still what a journalist saw yeah. when, when, when viewing the exhibition and the performances. And I guess, in a way, it says that that is an inherent quality, in a sense, of what you what you accomplished, and and also what was being exhibited. Well, also, when you when you looked at the installation, where did you see the fragility? Well, I guess we see one of the things that we see uh, with the wall that was there are the the what the fire did to it. I mean, even though it was relatively intact, there were there were there was charred wood around the perimeter of it. the The windows had been broken because of the because of the the effects of the fire. So there were things that had, yes, it was structurally intact <laughs> to some degree, but it was also quite visibly transformed. Right. I, well, so that was one of the challenges in, in working with a big museum like MoMA is that everything needed to be more than stable. And there needed to be no no possibility of no, no physical instability. And so how, how do I bring out the not, the, not just the injury in the fire, which, you know, in really simple terms, you could liken that to surgery and then the gradual and inevitable degradation of all materials as chronic illness or, or maybe just aging. But... So that's where I saw connections to my own body. You know, one one thing about this fragility that that brings up it, it brings up some of your past work. In in particular, I think about uh, the work that you did with the Martha Graham Company. Uh, with embattled garden, the Isama Noguchi set that had been destroyed in Hurricane Sandy, and that project. Well, I should let you you talk about what that project was. 
So the much of the Martha Graham Dance Company's archive was destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. It was fully submerged in water in a basement at the West Beth Artist Housing Complex, where they now have their studios. They had just moved in only a few months prior to the hurricane, or I guess superstorm, technically. But in that flood, all their paper archives were submerged, costumes, and all of the sets that they had stored on site, most of which were designed by Isamu Noguchi. And most of, I had asked the company, I was working for them at the time as a production assistant, and I asked them if I could repair one of the sets for them because I knew in a very hands-on way I was moving these sets into, into a, a secondary storage facility in Yonkers. Well, that's where they transferred everything. They decided to no longer store anything at Westbeth. But as I was doing that work and seeing how long the piecemeal process was taking, to, and a lot of this was determined by resources, They're, they didn't have the funds, nor would any dance company, to replace an entire archive immediately. But it was a long and sustained effort, and I asked if I could repair one set for them. What I learned was that the repair process was, in fact, a duplication. They were, these sets were damaged beyond repair, and they were having copies made. And in some cases, keeping original sets and costumes, in other cases, mold and other problems that would pose a risk to workers' health made it so they, that they needed to discard those materials. Embattled Garden had held up better than some of the sets, but was still not stable enough to support dancers. They actually stand on top of the raked platform in that piece. I had, in my practice, built a number of sprung floors and also worked with an existing traveling sprung floor, New York City Ballets, in a, a piece I did at Dance Space Project at St. Mark's Church. So reconstructing a, a piece, a set with a platform <laughs> made sense within the language of my own work up until that point. And this was the first time that I had done any kind of manufacturing of a historic work in any sense or, uh, you know, repair. I had, a lot of my work had been in the other direction. Materials had worn away, including my own <laughs> knee cartilage, for example. <laughs> and there wasn't at least a, a visible aestheticized within the parameters, or I guess the frame of the artwork. So <laughs> so it was really like, in a way though, that that project, I mean, I know it <clears throat> it wasn't a precursor necessarily to this project, but, but in a way, because it did happen before, um, it really can be viewed as, uh, uh, you know, it, as something that, that 
was a precursor that that it, that it did that you were building on that uh, that part of your own artistic past to go one step further. I mean, there you recreated, uh, you know, or or were commenting in some way on dealing with the destruction of a set. You've then moved on to working with the remains of an entire theater. And again, just as the remains of this theater are not just, this isn't just a theater, it's standing for much more within the Pillow's own history and within dance as a field, as an economy, the set and my role in its refurbishment, I think, had a lot to do with where our field was in the 2010s, where the Graham Company was in terms of figuring out how to prolong the life, not just of their archival materials, but of the works themselves in the wake of Martha Graham's death. I mean, yes, it was in the 90s, but it's something they're still figuring out. And, And many more companies since have had to deal with we're talking many more you know mid-century modern mm-hmm. American modern dance companies mm-hmm. um, this it's a preservation crisis how what do we do with yeah not just not just the archive what do we what does what do we do with this board of directors that we've gathered with the dancers are we going to give them severance and um, send them on their way or is it worth having a as some people, say, a museum company. So how do we go on is the question. Right. And so I was then, I guess, complicit in the in lengthening the life of the Graham Company in its current iteration. Mm-hmm. And so, but also I think that was troubled by my relationship to the company as a wage laborer. That mm-hmm. was important. I didn't just enter that idea as an outside artist. It was, I came to that project through touch, through Mm. feeling the damaged sets and having that kind of haptic knowledge of the archive, like through my body as a way to feel, feel into the project, feel my way through the project was important. So here it was Definitely a different type of operation, although I think there was a similar kind of feeling of my way into the final presentation through this very long research process. And ultimately, the same kinds of conversations that I had initially with people who would become performers, such as yourself, those, those conversations just continued and were staged. And there was really not much of a a difference in method between research, curiosity, investigation, and presentation. Yeah, well, you, you certainly drew upon the people uh, that, that you involved in the project um, not only myself, but Liz Thompson, the former executive director of The Pillow, and Tony Tong, who had been uh, an important planner. 
that led up to the the theater, as well as Stephen Fernstall, who was the architect uh, of the theater, and it it was something that you clearly felt that those individuals that those that those voices needed to be centered in some way. Yes, because. Uh, mm. Wait, is the question why did I think those voices needed to be centered? I wanted, I wanted, I wanted the the performers and the preservation performance to have all, or at least mostly, been employees of the pillow. I wanted a workers' relationship to the building, and also, and not an not an artist's. Uh, perspective, because that is what is usually foregrounded. We see what is staged, and I want to know what's in the basement, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which, in the case of the archives... (laughs) Quite literally. Yes. (laughs) It's true. Well, I must say it was a very self-effacing way to present the project, because in a way, I mean, your voice was very present, of course, overall, because every choice that went into to everything about it was was yours. And yet, at least in these in the performances that took place, you really um, ceded a lot of the control. Well, you had a lot of control, too. You were the person who was who was asking questions but uh, but you you were not giving the answers. You were in, in essence uh, allowing other people to to do that. So so you were giving the overall structure to it, but in essence, really um, allowing other people to have their say. I'm happy that you think that because I I fear that I'm overbearing and micromanaging. So that's. <laughs> at least a perspective counter to that. It's helpful. Well, and I should say also, you you had an entirely different, aside from we've been speaking mostly about preservation, which is the performance that was chiefly about Jacob's Pillow, but uh, every other week you had a companion piece uh, called Conservation that was mostly geared around uh, another fire, the the fire that took place here at the Museum of Modern Art. So I w- wonder if you could say something about how the two things fit together in your mind, conservation and preservation. Before I do, can I ask you, I'm curious what you thought once you saw the conservation performance. Mm. Well, um, I, I, I was struck by how different they were. I mean, certainly how how the structure of them was similar, of course, but um, but but it, for me, it just in, in me and I would say a relatively few number of people who probably saw both uh, both presentations. But I thought the the thought process that went into conceiving of them was really fascinating and i hope that that our listeners as well as other people will get a chance to experience 
both of them, either through reading transcripts or reading about uh, about this in the aftermath of the project, because I do see how they were two different pieces of a puzzle to some degree. And just how connected they were didn't even reveal itself to me until the project unfolded over those three months. I had, as you know, each of you had a counterpart in the other performance, a kind of mirror or a shadow self. And I wanted your counterpart to have some some kind of uh, similarity to you as far as your relationship to either the remains or to the two institutions at play, MoMA or Jacob's Pillow. In your case, it was Linda Zykerman, who is a conservator of sculpture here at MoMA. You two are the only current employees of the two institutions. One pair that became eerily similar (laughs) was Stephen Fernstahl and Peter Rosenbaum. Uh, Stephen Fernstahl, the original architect of what was at the time Studio 4 and would become Studio Theater and then the Doris Duke Theater. Peter Rosenbaum was the theater consultant for MoMA's studio. Which was the space in which this was taking place. Yes. Not the the architect. He was the theater consultant. But both of them... Aside from having similarities in their comportment and the way they dress, would speak about architecture and their own design recommendations and choices in very similar ways. And it was so eerie to hear Stephen talking about his vision for Studio Four in 1985 and have that description match the room that we were sitting in with everything from the windows to the so-called flexibility of the Mm -hmm. space to Mm -hmm. have multiple functions. Both of them had... Both of them had a, um, wanted their respective spaces to have to kind of recall the black box either in you know being something adjacent or opposition or in opposition to mm. um, the black box as a, a void. Interestingly, the two of them had some varying definitions for certain terms. Like studio theater meant something very different to. Mm. Uh, Stephen Fernstahl then to uh, Peter Rosenbaum. Mm-hmm. But I was interested in the ways that that historical moment in the mid-80s it, within dance is now echoed here in the 2020s. <laughs> I can't believe it's the 2020s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Almost the 2010s. Yes. Here in the 2020s in a visual art museum. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the real gifts that you've given, certainly to us at The Pillow, but also to the world, let's say, in terms of of putting, putting a larger context around wh- what happened. And 
you know, it could very easily have just been this this theater burned and, you know, the end. And instead, you've opened up a whole new uh, area for discussion about it, for people to be able to process it in a sense, and also to see it in uh, in another context, in, in the context of how... How is it similar and different than uh, a very different institution like the Museum of Modern Art? But this is something that would not have happened if not for your intervention, let's say, and uh, and and the whole project that you envisioned here. Can I say one thing about the performances that just? that maybe you not you might not know. It's, Please do. It's been so interesting to watch how, you know, I had expected that your positions on certain questions that I ask and also the way that you describe certain events, I expected a kind of distillation and crystallization that would happen over time. And I expected that the variations in the story would narrow and there might be a, for better or worse, uh, not a final, it's never final, but uh, it would result in in something, maybe it's even a duller version or something with less grit or it's more polished or something toward the end. But it was interesting, and that did happen in some cases and with some questions, but each of you, each of you 12 speakers had, and you know, I'm actually, I should say 14 because the firefighters also included some degree of ad-libbing, even though their speaking role was the only really scripted thing. But each of you, I think you were all very thoughtful and reflected upon things you had said in previous performances and changed your mind sometimes. And that was exciting mm -hmm. to see. And back to fragility, I think that just shows the instability, and I mean in an exciting way, and, and the fragility and the flexibility well, of, of history itself, of the way that we narrate our own pasts. Well, it was happening in real time. I mean, you <laughs> yes. know, that that was the exciting thing as being part of the part of these performances. And you never asked the same question twice. So uh, that that uh, would that would also meant that we had to be on our toes and coming up with new ways of thinking of things all the time, which was made it very exciting to be part of. Oh, I'm glad it was exciting to you. <laughs> well, listen, we're we're uh, running out of time, but I want to just give you an opportunity, the same opportunity that you provided to us for the last performance, which was you said to each of us uh, on the last performance, was there anything else? You asked us if there was anything else that we wanted to say that you hadn't asked us about. So uh, I wanted to offer you that same opportunity here. Is there anything else that you want to say about this project that I didn't ask you about? 
when I asked you that, you got kind of choked up in the performance, and that's happening to me now. Something you don't know is that after you walked back to the green room, I asked Dominic Tercy, the stenographer, if he included a note about you getting choked up. We talked mm-hmm. about nonverbal things that he includes in the record, and he said he did. Mm-hmm. So I'll be curious to see how, how that's recorded when we see the transcripts. But um, I don't know. I almost don't want to answer the question because I don't want it to be over. Well, that is an answer in a sort of way, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I can assure you that it's not over. <laughs> and uh, one of the one of the remarkable things about this is that um, there will be a new Doris Duke Theater, and I think the miraculous thing about that is, of course, that would not come to pass if it weren't for everything that we've gone through, uh, which I think is also a great life lesson. Thank you, Eve. Thank you, Norton. That's it for this episode of Pillow Voices. Thank you for joining us today. On behalf of Jacob's Pillow, we look forward to sharing more dance with you through the films, essays, and podcasts at danceinteractive.jacobspillow.org and, of course, through live experiences during our festival and throughout the year. Special thanks to the National Endowment for the Arts for helping launch this podcast series. Please subscribe to Pillow Voices wherever you get your podcasts and visit us again soon, either online or on-site.